You're listening to The Running Public. From marathoners to mud runners, we all have the same goal. Get to the finish line faster. That's right. This podcast is for you guys, The Running Public. This is The Running Public's Training Tuesday. Training Tuesday is where we talk about training only. One topic, we dive deep, we explore it completely. It's training, it's Tuesday. Training Tuesday. Tuesday, Tuesday, Tuesday. All right. Hey, hey, Bracken. Hello, Kirk. Hello, sir. I've been a lot of questions about you and your health. You have? Yeah, but before we get to that, I'm going to talk about me. That's fair. Let's do it. This should surprise no one. I don't know <laughs> if you know, but I've been meeting up to run from time to time with twinning the race. I knew you did once. Yeah. Uh, his name is Tim. And he's, uh, we met through the show, really. Bringing people together. We knew some people uh, in common. He's in the southeastern Wisconsin area. So at that mm. one mile road race, I had run against a couple of his friends. But we met up for a long run. And then we were supposed to meet up again a week ago for a long run. But I had my second COVID vaccine and decided I shouldn't do 17 in 90 degree weather uh, that morning after getting it, just in case. Mm-hmm. there was a reaction. Uh, but tomorrow we're running around Lake Geneva. Are you retime t- trialing or is this just no. a fun run? He's got a long run. He's prepping. He's always prepping for marathons mm-hmm. and he wants to run around it. And on our run, I'd mentioned I'd do it if you ever needed a partner. And he messaged me yesterday and said, Hey, so remember when we said that you want to do that tomorrow? I said, yup. I feel like this is a little bit ceremonious for you with progression of training and where you're at mm-hmm. yeah yeah wow. i was supposed to do two hour long run yesterday and uh he caught me with the message in time to avoid doing that with, why because two hours yesterday and then 21 miles tomorrow would be a tough ticket for me at this oh, point yeah. of fitness i thought you were talking about doing this yesterday versus today or whenever you're doing it no. so i bumped my schedule long run till tomorrow morning Okay, so if you're feeling it, you're feeling the vibes, you're like, man, I'm popping today. Are you going to roll and let him chase nope. you around? So you're not going for a PR. There's no way right now in this fitness I can I can PR. No way. Okay. I was I was legitimately in good shape. Not great shape, but good shape when I PR'd and I'm not. I, I You have to be able to attack the last nine miles. Yeah. And I would be on a good day able to attack for nine total miles. Tomorrow. <laughs> Nothing wrong with falling 11 miles short. <laughs> no, but if you recall, when I kicked off kind of getting back to training, I kicked it off yeah. with that round the lake scared straight day. And I was drawing dead at 11 miles. Yeah, you blew so, up, I believe. Or bad on. No. I had, like fighting and thrashing to try to break nine the last two miles. Do you know what? I've had this thought a number of times. Don't be mad at me for this, but yeah. Um, I, I would say on a half a dozen occasions here, and you talk about this Lake Geneva loop and all that, like I'm half inclined to drive down there on like a Wednesday and not tell you and then go rip it. I don't even know. And then just wait for your Strava notification to pop up and then, and then just wait on that text from you. I don't know why that would be so satisfying to me. I won't do it, but it's crossed my mind. Is that, am I, does that make me a bad person? No, I, I think our relationship can handle it. I, I would find it hilarious. Okay, that would good. be a, that would be a good one to do, and you shouldn't have told me. You should have just done it. I mean, I don't have any plans, but 
Here's my take on that. It is a soft Strava segment in terms of overall time, but it's strong in terms of the average person can't roll up and do it on their first try. I know the lake pretty well. I know the path pretty well. I know the ins and outs. And there's a few spots that you might have to backtrack if you don't know it because you have to cross over properties and there's one you have to run about a half mile off the lake and back on to get around something. So first few times on it, you'd lose some time there. And fitness wise, I'm sure you have the fitness to break it right now. So if you did it, I wouldn't shock me, but it also wouldn't shock me if you missed it your first time and then crushed it the second time. But then I'd have like, I could use a race excuse about not knowing the course and getting lost and all that. So it's a win-win really. Yeah. So anyway, tomorrow I'm going to go run long and we're getting a break in the weather. Cooling off. At night. Yeah. It's going to get down in the sixties at night this week, which is really, really cold (laughs) compared to what it's been getting down to at night. So even if it's still humid, we'll be running in the seventies rather than the nineties. Yeah. Well, we we have had fifties here. Have you really? Yeah. Oh yeah. I stopped with the windows open last night. Little breeze off the lake. It's been nice. We had high seventies, low eighties as our nighttime the last week, and that makes for a tough. Yeah, that's brutal. Tough type of weather. So, with yeah. a lot of humidity, but now we're getting back down. Fall's approaching. We got to we got to talk about uh, we got to talk about West Virginia. Did you? I mean, I'm gonna be uh, you know clear that I felt some FOMO, some serious FOMO. Yeah. Of course, did you feel any of that, or were you happy not to be on no. that course? No, that is such a, not zero, but if it were a super, I would have had a ton of FOMO. If it were a 10K, even up to like 10, nine or 10 miles on that course, but a full 13 to 14 is just such, you can't show up with any weaknesses to a course like that. And it looked miserable, but the course itself, I, you couldn't find a more beautiful place to run. It's amazing. The only thing I didn't have FOMO about was the uh, Hornets. Since I got stung by a bee last week, and I figured I didn't, I couldn't go two weekends in a row getting stung. So in that regard, sounds like those were bad out there. Yeah, it did. It reminded me of Asheville. At- Atkins and I were uh, getting stung next to each other one day on course. Happened in Asheville this last year too. Same thing. Did it? Yeah, it was ground. Those ground nests. Dude, just getting churned up by people's feet hitting them, and then the next person to run by just gets the brunt of the the wasp. You feel rat. bad. But it comes back around. So what are you going to do? We got to talk about your, why you didn't race. Cause you'd been talking, I wouldn't say talking a big game, but many people knew this was your a race of the year. This was your big, if you had to pick one race you wanted to do well at, this Mm -hmm. was it. Yeah. Yeah, it was. Yeah. I wouldn't say I was overly confident in this one by any means, but it was the focus of the whole year. This was going to be my Tahoe or my world champs in a sense. Cause, uh, I love that course. The longer stuff has suited me and I was kind of ready to, I was, that's what I was basing training decisions on was West Virginia, you know, even before Asheville or before anything, it was like, ah, but West Virginia, that's the one. So yeah, I was excited to go. That's fair to say. Why didn't you? Which excuse should I give? Should I give the knee excuse or the, the real excuse? Bracken's been on me. So, so people don't know this, but I've been having this knee issue pop up and Bracken's convinced I got to go get some imaging done on it. Bracken, you yeah. think that's, you still stand by that? You have lateral instability and it flares <laughs> up anytime you have to torque it, run downhill, do anything on not smooth terrain. Yeah, that's fair. Okay. Well, at the beginning, fine. 
But at the beginning of the week, Brack and I were talking about the knee because it was really flared up. But I decided, like, I'm going to run on that's. I'll deal with it after West Virginia. That was my plan. But then uh, I think, didn't I mention this? We missed an episode back in July. Maybe we didn't even mention it. But we missed an episode because I was sick. I had some, like, GI stuff and some other weird symptoms going on. And so what I was kind of out that whole week, wasn't I? We didn't record mm-hmm. a Friday episode, I think. Um, and that was probably almost two months ago. Well, same stuff sort of started happening this last week, like on Wednesday, Thursday for sure. And it was just like, there's no way you can go travel and race while you're feeling like that. So, um, so it was easy, easy decision. I was waffling over the knee initially, but I decided to screw it, go ruin it if necessary. And then get imaging done afterwards. Cause West Virginia was like my super bowl. But as soon as I kind of made that decision to race based on the knee, then, uh, got sick. So no decision to be made, really, which is actually kind of makes it okay. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. It's one thing to have to roll the dice or not, but when you're unable to get up, let alone travel, then it's it's frustrating, but it's not your call. Yeah. I was able to get up. I was, uh, I still worked out every day. You wouldn't have been yeah. able to handle a course. Not, I mean, that course, prob- probably not. No, but. Yeah. So working on that, I actually have this whole week off of clients. I'm taking off. I'm like doing a little doctoring. It's just like one of those things I got to start like slowing down. I've been getting like five, six hours of sleep a night, you know, not nearly enough, like all those little things. So like, this has been a huge reminder for me to, to chill, to like, maybe like put yourself first once in a while instead of other people. Cause they tend to put everybody else first, especially clients and athletes. So this week I'm going to take a reset. Could be stress, could be who knows what, but working on figuring that out. I'll say this about you. Most people I know who have a life like yours where they work a lot of hours and they have a lot of people pulling at them for time, when Mm -hmm. they say, I don't put myself first, oftentimes that means they let their workout go right away. And you don't even consider your workout yourself. That's just another non-negotiable in your day because you, I can't, how many times have you been like, hey, I have to go right now because I have 46 minutes left and I will squeeze my assault bite workout or a lift in or a run because I it's got to get in. So you pull from your personal time and your sleep time for your workout. And that's Correct. something that me and most other normal people struggle with and you don't. So I, I'll give you credit for that. I think it's, um, you know, product of my own design. I've got myself busier than I intended. So you couple that on trying to do big workouts and, um, when that happens, I wasn't eating as well. I nearly wasn't sleeping as well. I was living on caffeine, like all of those things that when you stack enough of those on top of each other, they just end up like putting you in, a, I think, a tough place. And I think I just did it too long. Um, and I think I have something, something's going on. I don't know what it is. And I'll see if I get back to you on that. But I have no plans to race coming up now. Like I'm just going to kind of focus on my health and me and getting back to square. I'll still train, but with no expectations of racing and I'll be all right. Deer hunting's just around the corner, Brack, and I'll be just fine. Yes, you will be. Mm-hmm. Did that scratch that itch for you about this weekend? I'm still trying to figure it all out too, so I don't really have a lot of answers yet. But Well, I feel like everything in your life <laughs> traces back to your black mold in college. Dude. It just destroyed your immune system. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Were you, is that all you wanted to say or I just felt like I interrupted? Oh, and then Lyme disease. Like you, we don't talk about this often, but you were – you got Lyme and last spring. Yeah. That is something that ruins people's lives and, and causes the, the, the hardest part about Lyme's disease, other than diagnosing it, most people don't get it. You, I think you are fairly lucky that you got it diagnosed fairly early. Well, it's two and a half, about two and a half months, which is kind of long actually, but yeah. 
But but some people spend years where doctors just don't look for that because the symptoms are so random at times and they mm-hmm. they can they they can be so multifaceted that it doesn't always scream tick bite. It, mm-hmm. it, it they look a lot of different places first and and it just like it manifests in such strange, weird, unpredictable ways. And so you combine mm-hmm. your 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 immune system, which was rocked with your black mold incident, which if you don't know about it, go back and listen to Kirk's get to know your hosts with, with, um, with him and then combine that with limes. And I just think that you are like, it all spirals and spider webs off of those two points in your life. And that sucks. Yeah. I would say before all that in college, I mean, I don't, I got sick like anybody else. So I kick it in two days. And now it's like, if I get sick, it all always turns into like a sinus infection or it's like bronchitis or something more serious. And so it's like courses of antibiotics every two to three months intermixed with like weird, you know, stuff in between. And that's all stems from that. And then after Lyme, I think we talked after off camera. I don't think I talked about this much, but I was having weird neurological symptoms. I think I told you about all that. Mm-hmm. Those are still coming back, like weird lapses. I would call them in consciousness, which is scary. I got all that checked out via like MRIs and brain scans. All that was last summer. They're like, everything's fine. Everything looks good. You're just having weird symptoms. We can't Describe, and that's all kind of coming to play right now with like the GI stuff in the mix. So who knows? It could be too much antibiotic use over the years. It could be as simple as that. I need to get my gut right. It could be a myriad of who knows what. So that's what I'm kind of in the middle of figuring out, and that's more important than any damn race bracken. It is, mm-hmm. but this we we talked with Macaulay about in that last interview about how much he loves running and loves training. And races almost don't matter to him. He'd rather just rather just run and train. So, and he's been injured so long that it's just, uh, it's unfair. Like nothing's fair in this world, but it's unfair that he doesn't get to do what he loves and use his gift because he wasn't given the gift of resiliency Yeah. in terms of physical resiliency. And I feel the same way about you often is that you have the, as big of a dedication to training in the outdoors as anyone I've ever seen. And yet you're constantly dealing with things. Yeah. Okay. One day we can do a deep dive into all the nuances of my health, but we'll save that for another day. How about that? Here comes a segue, Kirk. So while your body has been betraying you, it <laughs> seems like many other people's bodies have been betraying them on course with cramps. You're, if you can't see Bracken right now, he is smiling and very proud of this segue. It's a smug look, I would say. We've we've gotten more, we've received more messages about cramp prevention in the last six weeks than probably all of our running public episodes together. And our personal clients that we train have been dealing with it to an extent as well. Not, mm-hmm. I wouldn't say most of them are, but some have been dealing with it. And it's it's time we just dedicate an entire Training Tuesday to cramp prevention. It's absolute bullshit, all this cramping going on out there. Bullshit. Listen, put my hand down. It's got to stop. It's got to stop. Num- number of cramps that happened this weekend. Sure, you go into like a Utah and we're like, oh, big mountain race. It's not if, it's kind of when you might get the twinges of cramp. But you go into a course like West Virginia and you don't necessarily lead with the cramping foot as one of like the beware or warning signs yet. It was so prevalent. Like we've touched on this, what, in some Q and A's and maybe in some intro or exit, but we've never given it our full attention. And so like, man, I don't know about you Bracken, but if I didn't have a quarter or a third of my athletes cramp, like halfway through the dang race, 
I would say I, I, that's probably a fair, fair number. What about you? I think less, but I, I maybe had less people there. I, I only had one or two people really talk about cramping issues, but okay. we kind of made it a point of emphasis for a lot of people. Yeah, we have. The ones that cramped on my end, I thought were completely close to completely prepared, but still, still going to have to chat it out today, aren't we? Yeah. And there's really like a dividing line right down the middle. And on one side is nutritional and on the other side is muscular. And it's important to talk about which ones we're dealing with. Now we've talked about this, like you said, we've addressed it in Q and A's. We've answered the questions. We've talked about it in passing, but we want to drive home the point today that we're going to focus primarily on muscular cramps because lack of data behind this, I would say 90% of cramping is muscular failure and fatigue rather than a nutritional failure. Right. Why don't we just like address that concept as a whole, like put an umbrella over it. And that would be like, yeah, the two, the two parts that people typically, most people point the finger at nutrition or hydration or things like that. When in reality, I mean, most I would say studied would agree that it's actually the physical exertion that you weren't fully ready for, or there were some sort of circumstances in which caused you to cramp more beyond what electrolyte tablet you took or, you know, your hydration in general. So you have like those two components and we're talking about the back half of those components, which would be like the physical. I would say if we want to, just so we can like get it out of the way, do you want to address the like nutritional electric, like that's the first and then we can get into the rest. I think we should do that. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's a, what, a, maybe a billion dollar industry, the the electrolyte industry, sports drink, mm-hmm. hydration industry. It's a massive industry uh, for good reason. Electrolytes are mandatory nutritional aspects for your body. You need them in order to be in balance in order to perform at your best. And if you don't have them balanced, if they're significantly unbalanced or if imbalanced, or if they are in too small of a proportion to your hydration level, you will have muscular cramping. There'll mm-hmm. be other issues as well, but the the big ticket item for endurance athletes is cramping because that's a that's a day ender. So that is a real thing. However, it's very easy to stay on top of it because it is a billion dollar industry. There's so many powders and mixes and drinks and and tablets and chews you can take that it's a very, it's a very simple process to do. And yep. so once that's taken care of, it leaves only muscular cramping left. Yeah. I mean, and if you're going to simplify that, I mean, it's like, okay, this is what my process is. And I'm sure people out there more studied can rebut me, but eat enough salt, drink enough water, and you're going to be 90% of the way there as far as like nutrient side of things. Mm-hmm. Water, salt helps keep the, the water kind of staying in your system, keeps the electrolytes balanced and water obviously is necessary in long sweaty courses. And then you have your fringe stuff like magnesium and things, which can make a big difference for people. But like a lot of people were scratching their brains, like, should I have taken an electrolyte tab in the morning or when did I do it here or there? And what I want to tell you is I don't think it would have mattered. I don't think it would have mattered. And if it did, it would have been fractions of a percentage in general. That's just my personal opinion on it. But I mean, little things like, oh, I'm watching my sodium intake the day before a race. Not a smart idea. Something like that could lead to maybe problems. But that's just my general thought on that all. Yeah, I would say take an electrolyte tab the day before and take it in the morning of the race and you should probably probably be fine. For multi-hour races, yeah, you might have to take more during. But also a good amount of 
of uh, gels and sports drinks have enough in there that you're already fine. But if you're ever concerned, like you can have more because you're most likely just going to sweat and pee it out. Yep. You will cramp. You'll have less issues from having too much than you'll have from having not enough. So when in doubt, yeah, pop an electrolyte tab. It's really not going to impact you. Most likely it will not impact you negatively. So that's the easy fix. And here's for me wrapping up the nutritional side of it. There is a, there is a cause for concern that I think most people don't listen to or think about. And that is something I addressed in the last Q and A. And that is when people just overwash their system the last few days leading into a race. Like a hyponatremia. Yeah. Yeah. Where you just have such a point of emphasis on staying hydrated that you're traveling with your big old bottle of water and you just keep chugging and you keep drinking and you actually water down your ratio of electrolyte to water in your body. And, and, and you can just flush it out of your system. You just don't have enough electrolytes in your body anymore. Even if you had enough all training block long, if you increase your level of drinking and don't increase your level of salt and magnesium, you are going to be out of whack. And so I've, mm-hmm. I've had it with two athletes. I'm pretty sure this was their issue. One in, in um, Utah and one in Asheville. And they both struggled. And I think it's because they were so anxious about dehydration that they dug their own grave by overwatering their lawn. Yeah. Yeah. You see it a lot. You don't hear about it a lot. A lot of people don't understand that's where their race has gone wrong. You can go into situations almost like heat exhaustion type symptoms or other things where you're honestly you can that's fainting on course or feeling super weak and empty. It's a very real thing. Most people like like we preach this, or at least I preach this. People talk about eating leading up into a race. And, and my philosophy is, well, your decrease in intensity and volume is going to be your food taper as well, meaning just eat exactly how you have been. And because you're not expending as much, you shouldn't need to eat more than you typically would. And the same thing kind of goes for hydration, in my opinion, like the taper and all of that also includes like, hey, you're going to be sweating less. So, yeah, continue to drink like you normally are, but like you shouldn't oversaturate that same philosophy um, I follow for sure. As long as my pee isn't looking like maple syrup and I got some clearness to it, then I'm I'm good. And people do get a little off track there. Yeah. And and really, like you said, it's simpler than we make it. I love to remind my athletes that you've nailed workouts all throughout this training block and you didn't care what you did on Thursday and Friday a lot of the time. And you still really, really nailed your Saturday workouts and your Tuesday intervals or whatever days they were. I mean, yeah, a lot of them take their their diet seriously, but a lot of them don't. Mm-hmm. And their body functions off of that. And then they break homeostasis right before a race and they start doing stuff that is over and above and it actually hurts them more than it helps them. So one easy way to combat that is like you said, just don't change anything. Do the exact schedule you've done before every big workout and you'll be fine. The second thing is, which is what I do, is I know I drink more when I travel because I'm thirstier when I travel. I'm eating differently. I'm snacking a bit throughout the day. Airplanes make you thirsty. Car rides make you thirsty. Recycled air just makes you thirsty. And so I use meal or some sort of uh, squirt that I just put into the water and it always has minerals and electrolytes in it. And so I know that if I'm drinking extra, I'm also taking in extra electrolytes with that and that should balance me out. You know what I think when I think about hydration, I think that 
Um, most people worry about it way, way, way too much the day or two leading up. Mm-hmm. And where you're really going to go wrong is you're going to go wrong when you're not taking enough water in early once you're actually out on course. That is by far and away going to lead to cramping or shutting down more than anything. Skipping the water stations the first couple times early in a long race because eh, I don't need it now. And then you get behind and then you get dehydrated and then you cramp. It has very little to do with your lead in it as much as I think it does as far as the dehydration goes intra-race in the longer races. So that's how I feel about that too. I absolutely agree. And I, I again, I think that when it's nutritional, it's done before the race for the most part. Yep. For the most part. You always hear those stories of people who go out on course with nothing and they pay for it. But I have... I, I, my personal example for the nutritional piece is that that first year of my first Spartan World Championships, that's the year that I prepped for and raced the third, oh, it was a 14.7 mile championship race. Yep. When I crossed the finish line, I was given the option to continue for a second lap for the ultra and I did it. And I didn't take anything with me other than I refilled my water bottles. But my water bottles were empty. There was nothing in them. First lap, they had a mix in there to get me through for my calories. And I had, I had pared down to the bare minimum I could get through with water and calorie to get through three hours of racing. And it took me two hours and 59 minutes and change. So like I hit my bare minimum and then I did a total, my total time for the day was seven forty four, I think. So I had basically four more hours, four and a half more hours of racing. And I maybe like picked up 10 gel packets that were empty and sucked on them on course. Didn't somebody give you a cliff bar or something? I, I got a power bar, I think at mile like 12 of the second lap. And you charged back up. So I'd already been out there for three more hours before I got that one. Brutal. So I felt instantly charged. But the point is I was absolutely dehydrated and I was absolutely underfueled for that second lap and I didn't cramp at all. And that was up and down the ski hills in Killington. And I had prepared for basically that race, maybe 120% of three hours of racing. And I spent 744 on course. So I was underprepared from a endurance perspective and I was underfueled, but I did not cramp, but I had done a ton of muscular work of, of strength work and cramp prevention in training. The next year I did none of that work. I was in comparable endurance and I went out there and I flushed my system. The last two days we got to Killington two days early and we sat in the hotel room with nothing to do. And I just Mm -hmm. drank and drank and drank. And I cramped at like an hour and a half in and I cramped the rest of the day. Now the course was more brutal, but it wasn't hotter and I was just less prepared and I had flushed my system. Hmm. And training was pretty much the same leading up? The same, but different. I was in the same type of endurance. I hadn't placed the emphasis on cramp prevention. I'd placed my emphasis on speed gain. Got it. So anyway, I I flushed one year. I did not flush the other year. I did cramp prevention one year. I did not the other year. And the flushing and non-cramp prevention combined on the same year. I can buy into that. Overwatering, not helpful. Not helpful combined with not cramp preventing. So that is the end of my nutritional piece today. I don't know if you have more you want to add. No, but it's something, you know, I can give them an analogy if you want. And that's like if, uh, oof. oof, I think it's just steamy over there. But like, it's the same thing like watering a damn plant or flowers. What happens if you water it too little? It dries up and dies. What happens if you water it too much? Well, it drowns, it fades out. Like, so correct balance of minerals that that plant needs in order to grow and be healthy. 
the same thing is with your body chugging, you know, 32 ounce water bottles, you know, every hour on the hour, because that's how you stay hydrated the day before a race is a recipe for disaster. Mm -hmm. People hear hydration, they hear hydration and they think quantity. Yeah. I think I just need, I need more. And that is not necessarily the case. Now, properly hydrated is about a balance and the balance must be struck. Yeah, I agree. Studies have shown that you don't lose. Now this is getting into dangerous territory because sometimes people don't hear the whole message. They hear part of it and run with it. But studies have shown that you actually don't get that much worse performance wise when you dehydrate on course. It's true. And you have to be very dehydrated before it starts to do those bad things to you. Yeah. Yeah. It used to, they used to think that your performance dropped significantly within 4% of body weight loss, which let's think about a hundred, a 200 pound athlete. What's 4% of their body weight? Eight pounds. Eight pounds. That's not that much to sweat out. You know, that sounds like a ton to me. It's not that much to lose. I mean, if you weighed yourself before and after West Virginia, I bet you lose six to eight pounds easy. Yeah, maybe that's fair. And you're on course for two hours. Think about yeah. a six-hour race. It'd be easy. I think I lost 12 pounds in the, the the first ultra I did or 10 pounds or something like that as a 175-pound athlete. So, But they've shown that as long as you're hydrated coming in, you can get pretty dehydrated on course and you don't lose that much performance as long as your fitness is solid coming in. And I think that leads up, and I'm not recommending you get dehydrated because they've also shown that you're better hydrated than you are dehydrated. (laughs) There are absolutely, they're just talking about mitigating those damages, but it's the preparation piece that handles 90% of the issues that people experience with cramping. Yeah. So that would then lead us into like what we really want to talk about, which Mm -hmm. is how to prevent physically your body from cramping. Let's just like leave all the other factors we just talked about aside and now compartmentalize it to the physical aspect. And, and it comes out, we've mentioned this now a few times, like it's not the first time we're talking about this, but you, our belief and most others belief is that you cramp when your body is not ready for those specific race demands in that specific mm-hmm. circumstance with a specific situation. And so your body is doing this hard thing over and over on a day with your, when you're giving maximal exertion, And it's like, I've never experienced this before. I'm getting fatigued in a way I've never been fatigued before. And then I'm going to revolt. And that's kind of what happens. That's how I would summarize it. Yeah. And I guess, I'm not sure how I want to say this. Uh Uh-oh. Give me a second. I've got time. You do look deep in thought over there. Well, I half lost it. (laughs) (laughs) So, So you're half searching and half deep in thought. Well, I was searching for it and then I lost it. Maybe I'm having one of those lack of consciousness here, Eric. Maybe. Maybe you are. What, what did you say? Because it prompted I, I, I was just, <laughs> I was just talking about how your body's not specifically ready for the specific demands of the specific race in those specific conditions. And it was overexerting itself in a way it hasn't overexerted itself specifically before. And then your body revolts. If that doesn't spur something, I think I, I gave you 50% of it. Yeah. You, no, I'm back. So, okay. Now, maybe some some people, some some medical experts would would debate me on this, but you can fix your cramping muscularly and you can fix it nutritionally, but nutritionally you can fix it in a week or less. Yeah. Like it's as simple as you can get a magnesium supplement. You can start taking in more salt and you're kind of set. 
Just look for an just look for an IV bag guy down the street. Yeah, like you could get an IV bag, be totally caught up, and then as long as you stay on top of it, you're fixed. It could be 48 to 72 hours, and you're like 95 percent of the way there, and then it's about maintenance after that. But you can fix your that problem in a week or less. Mm-hmm. This one is the one that takes blocks of training to fix. And it takes intentional pieces. It's not as simple as I have my electrolytes. And if I check each one of those columns, I'm set. It's not as simple as that because our body has so many different places we can cramp. I've cramped Mm -hmm. in some bizarre places during races and it's always areas of weakness. And so you're right. It's you weren't prepared for that one specific demand. We had a lot of people after this Utah race say, I was so prepared. I did everything right and I still cramped. And the answer is you were so prepared for what wasn't asked for. And maybe even for what was asked for, but there was one piece that was asked of you that you weren't prepared for that. So you can have seven hours of fitness prepared for a three-hour race, six hours of descending, you know, five hours of climbing, whatever it is you have, which is way more than you could ever need, but maybe it was on the wrong terrain, or maybe it just wasn't at the intensity you used, but one little piece was not asked and it blew up your whole system. Yeah, exactly. And I think in training, even if we're assigning the right training, which I feel like we do as coaches, I feel like we're getting people, we're not perfect. Let's say we're getting them 80 or 90% of the way there, which is pretty good. But then you think like, go to a course like West Virginia, right? So let's say we assign you our workout called shoots and ladders. It's one of our favorites and shoots and ladders is up, down, up, down, basically hard. So you're used to climbing, descending, climbing, descending hard on tired legs. Let's say we assign that workout to you as an athlete. Our intention is to simulate, let's say, West Virginia, for example, up, down, up, down. There's a lot of that. But you choose to go to your cement hill or even your nice ski hill with a nice path on it. And you go up, down, up, down that. Well, we're getting ourselves 60% of the way there when we do that workout. But now you go to West Virginia and your feet are getting caught in brambles. You're making sharp 90 degree turns while descending. You're going uphill through like ruts and rocks and all that. And pretty soon it's just a completely different scenario. And so like you even got to think about nuances within the training that are what really caused you to, let's say, cramp on course. So like those are the things you got to think about. I want to follow that example right here all the way through to the end and show exactly what we're talking about. So that shoots and ladders workout. Love it. And it's perfect for preparing for a West Virginia. However, like you said, let's say you do it on a ski hill or a, a, a paved long road. Even if it's a steep road, it can't be past a certain percent or it's not drivable. So when you're running downhill on smooth, controllable terrain, where does the impact hit your body? It hits quads, it hits your hips, it hits your glutes, and there's some amount of lower leg force. I would say it, it affects your soleus a bit. Yeah. That's where the majority of the impact hits. And that's where you're going to get that eccentric loading when you hit the ground. And that's where you're going to get your soreness afterwards. And if you get cramping during the workout, that's where you're going to get it. Yep. But then you head to, let's say West Virginia, and you're heading down through the brambles, down these ravines, down these ridges, and it's very, very steep and it's very, very technical. And you can't use your long unbroken stride anymore. What muscle groups start get pulled into play there when you're chopping and galloping and breaking your stride? You're not on your toes as much anymore. You start to use calves. Well, I was going to let me answer that. I was going to okay. answer that. Answer it, please. Well, calves. Okay. Why? Why do you start to use calves? Because of the 
finite ability that those things need to maneuver you through the terrain. Yeah, more than anything, I would say. And then you have your gr- and then you have your growing. You hear about growing cramps and people. That's Wait, what word are you saying? The growing. Growing. Yeah. Are you saying groin? You're growing. Yeah. You say growing. Huh. I've never noticed that about you. You're growing. You're growing. How about that? We don't talk about gro- groins enough. I'm hearing the word g r o w i n g. No, g r o i n. Huh. You're growing. You're growing. But you're asking, get out of here. So you're 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 doing a lot of lateral movement and these small finite adjustments mm-hmm. to your stride, and suddenly you're growing. You're growing cramps. And then you also have your hip flexors from picking your yeah. knees up higher at times than you need to, getting caught in a bunch of junky trash. And those aren't, I mean, sure, you can cramp in your hamstrings or your quads, but you see these like secondary muscles starting to go on people. And then I would say if you're slower, if you're not still springing and bounding downhill, now you're putting your heels down, trying to stop yourself from going out of control through the brush when you're bushwhacking downhill. And now you are engaging hamstrings. Like you can't sure. push your heels hard into the ground without engaging your hamstrings. And that's not something you usually take a huge pounding on downhill. And so now that hamstring train has started to leave the station too. And I think the slower you are downhill, the more those hamstrings come into play. Well, and even if you aren't slow going downhill or a traditional slow downhill runner, courses like West Virginia, the number of times it forces you to use the braking effect, like mm-hmm. let's say you're able to open it up and you're one of those great, beautiful descenders. Well, sometimes there's trees in the way and there's 90 degree hairpin turns going down and you end up using the braking effect a dozen, two dozen times in a race when you're blowing downhill. You don't do that in training. You rarely do that in training. And I'm not even pointing a finger at people for missing the mark. It's more like, let's open our eyes to why yeah. we missed the mark. And the, and, and the details are in the, the fabric, as they say, right? Yeah. And, and there's one more piece to that. And you, you, did t- you alluded to it. But even the act of leaving the hill at the bottom, when you're running controllable hills, you hit the bottom and you translate into your normal stride and you just cruise out of it. But in places where you're doing a lot of technicality and when the course sends you right back up, you have to hit the bottom and you have a finite amount of space to stop your momentum and turn around and head back up those hairpin turns. And West Virginia has a decent amount of that. I remember one year going down, flying past, and uh, Ian Hosick yelled something like, yeah, Bracken, <laughs> right at the bottom. I passed him and I was, I felt like I was flying and he... I don't know if he was sarcastic or not, but he yelled something out about my descent. And then we hit the bottom and I had to take this big wide turn and he was ahead of me by the time we started up the next one. So you're mm-hmm. quick breaking and stopping rather than flowing through the bottom. And again, no, I was just saying, you know, funny, you know what's funny about that turn is they actually had that turn on the uh, live broadcast. I remember it. Yeah. You know, you came down, you took a right at some like short grass. Yep. You went down like a bush. Yeah. They had that. You were in. That was probably the last time we saw you on that broadcast, but yeah. You were in there. I remember seeing that. And you flew down that little thing, little scuttle steps. Flew through it, Kirk. But then you had to quick, 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 stop, 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 stop. And that's tension all the way up your legs. And then the final piece is when you're running down ski hills or roads, you are really like hitting the ground as you want to. And so you're in control of your footfall until you get out of control. And you're spending a minimal amount of time on the ground in a good way. You're just springing right off, right off, right off. And when you get on nasty stuff, especially as you fatigue, you start to slap into the ground and you start to slap her. Are you? You've run with me. I'm usually behind you. 
<laughs> but that sends this shockwave of impact all the way up your legs that's just more intense than anything you've been doing in training. And so, again, you've done your hours and hours and thousands of feet doing it, and yet you've worked almost two different muscular systems and chain reactions up your legs on those two different terrain types. And this is this is what we mean by you were prepared, but not you didn't teach to the test. You were just prepared in general fitness for what you thought. And suddenly you've your your groin your groin starts to to cramp and your hamstrings start to twinge and your calves start to twinge and the bottom of your feet are hurting because you're just impacting differently. Well, you've you've understood and trained properly in theory, but you haven't necessarily taken that theory and what do you call it? Teach to the test. Yeah, teach to the test, so to speak. So, do you know the origin of that? Teach what? to the test. No, enlighten me. Okay. Uh, I Maybe it's a teacher thing, but there are teachers who are known as kind of crappy teachers in the teaching yeah. world. They teach yeah. to the test. They have the test. They know what's going to be on there. And so they teach the kids to know the answers rather than how to think through processes. There's teachers who they get their kids get good grades and they, their marks look good and they get good reviews. And the other teachers in the faculty know, well, she, she's just teaching to the test or he just teaches to his test. The kids don't learn anything. They just it's rote memorization. So what, what kind of teacher what kind of teacher were you, Bracken? I was a I was a life skills teacher, Kirk. I was teaching teachable moments and we, we wanted to teach you how to learn, at least in my mind. That's what I was doing. You worked with learning dis disabled children. Yeah, I was right? a special educator, so that that okay. changes things as well. But at the same time, I took that to heart and I taught exactly to the test in some things. You, usually, it's a negative connotation for a teacher, but I thought I think we're just looking at the wrong tests. Right, we're looking at the pen and paper tests we're handing out, but I think the real tests are how do you apply this in life, and especially as a special educator, was. It doesn't matter if they know the number. It matters if they can use this when they're asked to in life. And so like supermarket dealings or how to cut lumber or how to download an antivirus, like things that were necessary for life. We taught exactly to the test so that we had a life skills checklist of things you could check off. So when you encountered it in life, you were set to that. So I use teaching to the test as a positive thing, but in reality, it's usually considered a negative. So maybe I throw some listeners off there. Well, then I need to re-say what I said and say, not teach to the test. No, in this situation, we're owning it positively. Like we, base building is global fitness. That's when we teach how to learn, how to grow fitness. But then when you have your specific race, it's time to teach to the test. Like you're going to be tested on how to run down nasty specific terrain and break at the bottom. So that's the skill we need to now work on. Okay, so we didn't teach to the test. <laughs> if we if we cramped if we cramped we did not teach the test okay understood um did i muddy that up nicely for everyone uh, yeah good it's naturally not good but it's good if you use it for the correct purposes understood clear as mud um <laughs> I, I was just gonna say like i i understand though like the situation you can get yourself in as you're training for this race like how many of us have like easy access to something like West Virginia. And are we going to go to our local forest, let's say, and just be like, oh, there's a nice trail, but let me just veer a, a right here into the, the bushes and start getting after it at threshold effort. So like, we're not pointing fingers and saying it's your fault necessarily, because these type of 
circumstances are very hard to duplicate. They're like very, very hard to duplicate, which is why you cramped. It's exactly why you cramped because these Spartan races are nothing like what you do in normal training. Even if you try to teach to the test, we still aren't prepared for a five minute swim going into an uphill, for example. So not pointing fingers, but just saying like, how can we work our way around these things? Yeah. Well, the first, the first skill comes back to something we talked about in a previous episode, which is preparing for races and championship races. And that is you get a hold of previous year's GPS maps and you read people's write-ups and you watch the race reviews. I can't tell you how many hours I've spent in my race career scouring Reddit, scouring uh, Spartan forums, scouring uh, Strava and YouTube for write-ups, recaps, analysis, GPS files, and race footage of races. When I went to do a savage race at a, at a place I've never run before, the first thing I did is I went on YouTube and I found some open waivers, uh, GoPro footage that I could use to just watch the terrain. It's right where I started with the Spartan race, which are the most yeah. annoying things in the world to watch once you're tenured. But when yeah. you know nothing, it was like oddly helpful. Yeah, the average person doesn't want it. But the person who wants to see the terrain, you see the terrain through someone's GoPro. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So that's where you start. You find out what is the test actually going to entail so that I can start working on those. But let's say like a number of people we coach, they're landlocked. They're stuck in a city or wherever, and they can't get to this terrain. What do you do then? Where do you build up this resistance to cramping? Well, you think about the things that we all talked about and think about the areas that can cramp and the demands that the race will provide that you're linear training won't. And then you, you teach to the test. I'm going to use that as many times as possible today. Um, <laughs> Cause it's so perfectly unclear that we might as well just use it. Now we're, we're Kirk at the running public. We are, we are taking back the term teaching to the test. It's now a good thing. Every time we say it from here on out, it's a positive. We are analyzing and we are teaching to the needs of the race. Well, we take our, we take our compromise run sessions or our strength training sessions, and then we apply them to what could go wrong in the race. So for example, we preach compromise running here. And if you're on the running public training plan, you see that as races lead up and things like that. But it's like, okay, I'm going to do a quarter mile run, but this time I'm going to do lateral single leg hops and absorb impact, something like that. Or I'm going to do side lunges in between instead of like a linear walking lunge or something of that nature. I'm going to do big what we call, you know, you call, you used to prescribe tuck jumps. I like to do those on one leg sometimes, a one-legged mm-hmm. spring up, things like that that are going to force you to use proprioception balance and also drive the hip flexor. So we just shift a little bit of what our compromise sessions look like and make more like um, non-lateral movements in there because that typically is what gets us. So, oh, yeah. um, so we start with something like that, for example. If we can't simulate it by actually going out on the trails and doing it, then we simulate it by the best we can compromise work or in the gym. And I guess, why don't I pass the torch to you about in the gym? If, if you got any thoughts there. Well, you nailed it with the compromise workouts. That's, that's the, that's the skill. That's where you tie the skill together. If you can't tie it together on the side of a ski hill, you know, through some nasty stuff, then you tie it together in a a sterile environment where you choose exercises to fatigue the same pieces to the point where they would be on a hill. But in the gym, I think there's, I think there's three things you have to do. I think the first is do what we always preach, which is low rep, high weight, powerful movements. 100%. Because those recruit, those recruit 100% of your muscle no, fibers. No, re- I like re- recruit. Recruit. Those kind of like 
That's kind of like growing. <laughs> I'm anytime you slip up today, I'm calling you up. Continue. Those recreate a hundred percent if you're doing it correctly of your muscle fibers of any given muscle group, and you can very easily target muscle groups. It's really easy to do in the weight room, and so you load up the weight and you do five rep or under wet reps and sets reps sets of five reps or less. And you just get good at being powerful through that full range of motion and using a hundred percent of your muscle fibers. Because one of the issues we run into is that we go out and do training runs and we don't use a hundred percent of our muscle fibers. We just don't. We train what running casually. You might use 40%, 60% of your hamstring, but you're not using it all because you don't need to. Your body is a master of efficiency. It doesn't contract every muscle fiber if it doesn't have to because it's a miser of energy. It doesn't want to expend it. That was a good use of the word miser. It's one of my favorites, actually. Thank you. you. Remember that book? Uh, you remember the book, Lizer the Miser? No. Oh, he saved all his money and then it worked out for him in the end. Well, that's good. That's, that's basically it. Yeah. Um, uh, what did you say before that? <laughs> well, I was saying that you want to recruit all your muscle fibers because you don't in most workouts. And so you need yeah. to use them fully so that they're able to fire. If you get to a race and you haven't used your full hamstring because all you're doing is running, by the time you get to a point where you're, the normal muscle fibers that you're using are fatigued, there's nothing left to back them up. Right. They haven't been used. They haven't been touched. There's no real endurance built into the rest of that muscle group. And your stabilizers and supporting groups probably aren't worked as much either. And so Cramping happens earlier and more often because your full muscle is not bulletproofed. Only the portion that you use is. Yeah. And just touching on like the going heavy part that you talked about, like if we can do five heavy reps that bring us close to failure, like out on the race course is a fraction of a percentage of that sort of physical load, we'll call it. So mm -hmm. you should be able to endure that multiple, multiple times before fatiguing. So the simple premise of like heavy strength work is like, your body understands what a heavy load feels like, and it's gotten used to that, even from a nervous system standpoint. So all those repetitive small motions out on course shouldn't be as detrimental because our body is so baseline strong. Um, yeah. Somewhere, like, I can say that maybe I missed the mark as a coach. Maybe it's a confessional because some of my athletes I thought I had perfectly dialed in. And, and maybe there's some extenuating circumstances. I don't know. A lot of, like, West Coast racers who train in the West Coast mountains mm -hmm. uh, came out and had a hard time with cramping. Um, so maybe there's something in, to do with, with all that, just the cleanness of terrain out West versus here. But, um, sometimes maybe I take for granted and you take for granted, like our, uh, like our lateral movement sport days, like you play basketball mm -hmm. and we were left and right and forward and back and cutting. And I played soccer and I was a center midfielder who, um, was all over the field. And I played that almost till I was 30 high level competitive college level soccer, like all the college retirees played here in the city. And I played that. So the point I'm getting at is you and I also have rose tinted glasses a little bit because like we've built up sort of decades of lateral work while fatigued. So it's not always top of mind for everybody to say, hey, we need to actually get more specific here because I think we've made a number of bank deposits in the in the lateral bank. Do you know what I'm saying there? And that's a confessional on my end in a sense, because I was trying to rack my brain around why so many people cramped this week, this weekend. Cause I thought I taught to the test and maybe I taught to my test, which is yeah. oh, years of lateral movement. We don't, we don't need to do lateral lunges right now. So it's actually had challenged me a little bit as a coach. I don't know if you fall into that problem as well. For sure. It's hard to feel what you haven't felt. Exactly. 
And that's one of them. If you don't generally crap cramp in the, in the hip flexors and in your abductors and adductors, then, then maybe, maybe you don't really grasp that someone is about to do that because you haven't felt what they have felt in training. And I think that, yep. that you can build that in as like banded monster walk in between reps. Sure. It's a good it's a great movement. That will burn you as much as you want to burn. Just keep doing more reps or throw on a weight vest or throw on ankle weights and keep doing them or just make your bands heavier or anything. That just that will destroy you back and forth and back and forth and then hop on the treadmill uphill. The hardest part about those actually is um, which banded monster walks are great, but like really engaging the the growing of sorts. <laughs> that's the, that's the <laughs> The growling, that's the trickiest one of them all really is to induce that movement because how often do we pull in with our leg against a force? Not very often. That's a, that's a, a specific movement that you might need to yeah. come up with in the gym. Yeah. So then I like to balance out the power work. And this is something that we don't, I don't program nearly as much as I should. I basically only program it when cramp prevention is needed, but with insanely high rep low range of motion exercises. Okay. And this is when I half joked, but not really joked about bar class. I was doing so much of that style work that first year before the world championships. That was the year when Braden um, could not fall asleep for me, only for Lisa. And the only way mm -hmm. I could keep him happy or half asleep is to just move him up and down semi-rapidly, but not huge range of motion. And I did a ton of just half squats, quarter squats, quarter squats, eighth squats, mini lunges, mini lunges, rocking back and forth. And anytime she was working out or showering or anything, just to keep him happy if he was at a, a point in the day when he was upset because he was only, I think he was born in August and the race was in late September. So I did probably seven weeks of essentially bar class two to three times a day, just hundreds and hundreds of reps of just three inches up, three inches down, but targeting just one area at a time. I target the front of my quad, lean forward on a, on a lunge and just pulse right there. And then do that until that leg really couldn't fire anymore. And then switch legs and then get into a deep, like, like I was doing a goblet squat and then yeah. pulse at the bottom there and target my groin and then just, just try different angles. And I did that endlessly. And that's the type of stuff I program for people who have like my hip flexors always cramp or my inner thigh always cramps or whatever it is. And just pulse and pulse and pulse and pulse and pulse, because it's not something you would prescribe for athletic performance in terms of power output, but it does bulletproof your ability to fire muscle groups over and over and over and over. Well, running is a limited range of motion sort of thing. In a, it is. In essence, in a sense. So you could see how that translates. Do you want to know what I was thinking about when you were telling me this story about you pulsing for like months straight? No. Was Cody Mo? I mean, yes, I do want to know. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but you don't know why, I think. Are you going to talk about elk hunting? Because I just talked about it with an athlete this weekend. Frickin' A, Bracken. Come on, don't steal my thunder. You want to We're just on the same page. We're mind oh, melting here. Okay, we're mind melting. All right, we're flowing. I like, I can feel your chi coming through the uh, video camera. It feels nice. Um, Cody Moat and elk hunting. Yes, because I don't know how many of you that listen to this are new and how many aren't, but Cody Moat in 2017 went and won the Spartan Race World Championships by like four and a half minutes, which is unheard of at the Spartan Race World Championships. It always ends up a little closer than that. 
And Cody Moat's not much of a social media guy, but I recall in the lead up about two weeks or a week before, you know, I don't think he's posted in a year, but he posted him holding a dead elk head on his front lawn. Like, you know, all the Spartan races he ran wasn't worth putting on his Instagram, but that one elk was like, you know, you show what matters to him and that hunt mattered to him. And Cody took what, a week, I believe, within two weeks to go elk hunting. Two? Two? It was at least a week and a half. And for those of you, again, I don't expect you all to be hunters like me, but the elk season opens in September and it's a very exciting time for those out in the mountains. So they typically put, you know, 60 pounds of gear on their back. They might even take trekking poles. They might pack in a mule. They're going to have all their food they need for a week or two. And they're going to hike through the mountains with 60 plus pounds on their back. And they're going to try to harvest an elk, right? Way up at elevation, at altitude. They could be at 10,000 feet or 8,000 feet. And Cody Moat went out and basically, I believe, didn't specifically train in a sense where he's going out his door and running for at least a week. I think he maybe had a break in there or something where he reset at home. But point being is he went out there on undulating, crazy, high altitude, dry, rocky terrain in September in conditions and just put time on feet for how long? Going laterally, moving around the mountains. And then he goes out and has the most convincing win in his entire career at the Spartan Race World Championships where some would say like, well, his lead in wasn't great. But then in hindsight, was it not great or was it fantastic? Because he had already built a huge engine. That wasn't going anywhere. He was hiking through the mountains with who knows how many pounds on his back. And then he goes and runs a Spartan Race World Championship and he taught himself to the test without even trying to for weeks prior. So that example right there always has stuck with me for some reason. Yeah. And Cody, his entire career was he's got the biggest engine here. He's the best mountain runner, maybe the best flat runner. And he struggles on carries at times. And he struggles with cramping in cold weather, in cold water. And do you remember his carry on that course? Destroyed the double sandbag carry that year. Like a minute faster than he went from second to first. And he was in first by a mile after that carry. Yeah. And he didn't cramp that year. It was the only year he didn't cramp. Mm-hmm. So there, there's there's some truth to that. So again, it's, a, it's a, not a typical piece of programming. But if cramp prevention or little muscle group bolstering is needed a block of bar style training and bar training is where you hold on to the bar even though bar is usually spelled different i think it's b-a-r-r-e but you hold on to the bar like ballet bar and you get into a position oftentimes on one foot or or leaning more weight onto one leg and you pulse and do repetitions of of high rep repetitions in one plane of movement but they're very small range of motion and they just burn out one area of your body. Well, let's like explore the strength side of things or that side of things Mm -hmm. further. Let's just wrap up the side where when we talk about training for the race terrain in those specific circumstances, we acknowledge is hard. It's not necessarily your fault, but that's how you have to think and then find terrain or ways to simulate it in training that will at least set you up for, you know, success on race day. But the other side of that then is the gym work, the gym component. Um, And now we've talked about your pulsing, but we haven't talked about, I guess, or in depth, the specific movements as far as strength work goes that can help you at least stave off cramping. Do you have any of that first come to mind for you before I jump in? Are we talking the pulsing or the power? We're talking power. Power. It's hard not to say single and double leg deadlift. Okay. I think that really works that rear chain like very few other things do. And... You can change it up with grips and stances and trap bar versus flat. And you can really work every area that tends to cramp on people. 
outside of lower leg. So that's okay. where I would start, I think. Yeah, I instantly moved to single leg stuff. So um, let's say we're in a heavy barbell squat or deadlift phase, which is great. I love that phase. Um, that very much can translate, by the way, that raw power. But we'll move that to like a single leg phase, which could be pistol squats. It could be um, single leg box step ups, split squats, all the stuff that you've heard before. But if you know your historic camp uh, cramp or like in the inner thighs, which happens to me, oddly enough, on like a barbed wire crawl or some weird things. I don't know if you experienced that, but but then going into your side squats or those machines that mostly the chicks use that don't really mm. care about their fitness. They only care about how they look. The ones where they have the uh, rotating like add an abductor uh, machines or the standing sort of pivot. I, I don't know the name of the machine. I should, but uh, where you're actually engaging your inner thighs there. A lot of those machines, you know, you're squeezing your legs together and then the other one, you switch that around and then you push your legs apart in a seating position. Correct. There's that one, but there's also one where you can actually stand up. It's got a roller on it. Most gyms have them. You can also do like a hip flexor knee drive in that as well, where you can, you can use it laterally, medially, or sort of linearly any way you want. And so I would start going into that stuff and using that stuff. At least if anything, it's peace of mind, but if we're talking about the non-basics, the barbell deadlift, the barbell squat, the walking lunges, getting into the sort of those yeah. specifics, then I'm just thinking like, how can I work my hip laterally and medially and find ways to do that? That's where I start with that. And and again, if you have the if you have the right setup, you could add that even into like run work or compromise work. But um, that's where my mind goes. Can't really add much to that. I I think that that if I had to pick three major movements to do there'd be a deadlift there i'd go front squat and bulgarian split squat i like the front squat gets people to engage their hamstrings a little bit more at times uh, a lot of people lean into it a little differently and it, it translates to runners i think because our core is so weak i think you can squat with a weak core better than you can front squat with a weak core and you can squat with weak hips better than you can front squat with weak hips Not that a lifter would say you can squat with any of those things, but you can't squat well with them, but you almost can't front squat at all without engaging things correctly. Otherwise you're just going to be rounded over and you're going to hunch and you're going to drop the bar. Front squats are fantastic if they're done in the right regard. Um, I would argue though it's quads and core instead of hamstring. I mean, it, it is, but again, I think you can improperly back squat without using your hamstring at all. Yeah. Oh, yeah, for sure. I just think you can't improperly front squat because it tells you right away. You're like, this is I'm not doing this right. We're a back squat. You see a lot of people squatting and they're like, yeah, I did well on that. You know, like, no, you didn't. But they don't know it. But a front squat talks to you so loudly. And most runners aren't used to lifting that I just prefer that for engaging things. You know what the key is to it all, though? The key to it, it, like even the deadlifts or the front squat is the core. The core is like the centerpiece to your strength pyramid and like everything revolves around that, even your ankles and your footwork and your hips and all of that. So maybe there's a little bit to that as well. Just core engagement, better power, proprioception, things like that. So I don't really have any more to add from the power side. We're doing, there's only so much you can do. I, Mm -hmm. I would add more variations on the high rep side. Yeah. I think if you're, if you're going to pick one thing about everything that we've been chatting about, it's hands down going to be actually like visualization type. Think of the course that you're going to be running 
visualize if you've been out there before, then you should be able to do that. Or if not, you should know by hearsay and then think, okay, dang, how can I emulate this in my, my training? And it sounds stupid. It really does sound stupid. Like to simplify, like, duh, go do in training what you do in racing. But our race circumstances are so dang unique sometimes that it's, you really got to stretch a bit to figure out how yeah. to simulate that. And, and that's really the key, I think, more than anything. I would say that you talked about core tying everything together and you're hundred percent right. But if there was a second muscle group, I would say that gets totally written off by runners and by almost all strength trainers, other than true bodybuilders, it's calves. Okay. And I'm a, I'm a, I'm a guilty party here, but calves are responsible for so much that we do and calves cramp on people a lot. And I think everyone should perform some, some calf raise testing, get on one leg, bend your, your knee a little bit to load up your, your, your whole leg, the way it would in a stride. And then full range of motion calf raise up. If you can do 25 or less, like you're a prime candidate for calf cramping. If you can do, if you can get up to 50 per leg before exhaustion, you're sitting pretty. And if you can get, do more than that, if you can get 60, 70 calf raises in a single slightly bent position, then your calves are probably in a really good position to do well. And they're, they're a muscle group you don't want to train too hard because they're so touchy, but you also do want to train them because running alone is not enough. Mm-hmm. I believe for most people, there are some people who never have to touch their calves, but I believe Ryan and Lindsay are two people that don't cramp very often. And they, they have a, some amount of emphasis on calf work in their, at least in their off season program. I did not know that, but I could be wrong. This is just something I thought I remember hearing. Just say things. It's fine. They'll correct us later. We, uh, I, I was just going to also say with the calves, it's not something I historically struggle with, but when you think like your body and what's, like powerful and what is less powerful. You look at your glutes, your hamstrings, your quads all the way down. As you get down there, just capable of less power output. It's a weak point in the chain, Mm -hmm. so to speak. So using more emphasis on that, uh, I agree with. You want me to keep rolling? You got some noise going on over there, Bracken? He's saying, yeah, in silence. Bracken lives, uh, oh, there he's back. You had a motorcycle pull up outside of City Hall Park a few minutes ago. I think people would understand if a uh, motorcycle went by while we were talking. Milwaukee's a big Harley city. Yeah, I just got to uh, keep on jet skis once in a while, get too close to shore, and then they're too much. So I have one final talking point, Kirk DeWint. DeWint. I'd like to hear it. And that is a bit of um, combining things together. We already talked about the compromise workouts, but actually setting up, because I believe that long runs are imperative. Long workouts are imperative to cramp prevention. You have to be able to work for a long time. But how often have you gone past 60 minutes and then started adding in some strength work into your workout? I would say most people don't. And this applies from marathoners all the way to mud runners, like we say in Training Tuesday. This is this is legitimately something I think everyone should do. And Fred Clary talked about this a bit. But get 60 minutes in and do a 15 or 20 rep set of something. Front squat, back squat, deadlift, weighted walking lunges, something like that, and continue on. And do that several times in your second hour of work. There is something borderline magical about having to engage powerfully 
during a long workout that carries over to race day. I want to like dig into that just because like, how do you really implement something like that? Go for a long run and like sneak a barbell in the woods. You do it on your treadmill and jump back and hit like, Hey, I'm going to hit 10 reps at 185 on back squat every 10 minutes. And that's my plan for my long run today. Is like that the type of stuff maybe you're talking about? I think for the novice, for someone who's new to all of this, doing a long run and stopping every 15 minutes and doing 30 walking lunges is enough. That's enough weight. It is hard to explosively walk lunge with good ground contact and firing all the way through without bowing out to either side for, for someone who's just a pure runner. I think that alone is enough. But as you move up in effectiveness, yeah, I think scripting a day where I need to have access to a weight, whether that's treadmill or whether that's doing loops around your neighborhood or around a gym, but getting back to the point and doing three sets of 15 deadlifts and then heading back out for four more miles and coming back in and doing it again and doing it again, something like that. Really, really beneficial. Have you ever experimented with that? I've been experimenting since Fred. I mean, I used to do things like that, but they used to be body weight or sandbag based where I do what we would call a beast workout, whereas more of a sim prep for a beast workout or for a 13 mile OCR race where I had sandbag lunges or clean and press and things like that at the end of a workout. And it's, you always feel like you're in molasses. Like I just can't rep my, my pace on my reps is slowing and slowing. And I know that and my form starting to sag and forcing it to keep together there, I believe directly carries over to be able to work with purpose at the end of a race because everything's starting to go at the end of a race. And you watched, you watch at the end of any race. I, this weekend, I watched the West Virginia Spartan race, and I watched the Olympic marathon. And in both of those races, it was the people who had their form together at the end who were still able to attack. The people whose body had failed them couldn't keep their form together any longer, and they had to break down. There were people who couldn't keep the pace, but they kept their form together. Callum Hawkins was one of those. Uh, he's a British marathoner. His form looked good the whole way in. He just couldn't hang with the pace anymore. So he was still able to keep running after people. Osaka's uh, Japan's marathon national record holder. And he almost ran himself into a medal after being dropped because he kept his mm-hmm. form. He was on his toes the last three miles attacking because his form had him broken, even though he couldn't keep with their pace. And these are the type of workouts that I believe keep your form together at the end of races. You know, there's a couple of times where I'd been kind of nicked up or injured and I was doing these long compromise cross training sessions. I don't know how much you remember about that phase. It was actually before I would say my best season in 2018, where I had my coming out party at a few top fives and some national series races and whatever. But what I was doing in that lead up is I was like doing, okay, I'm going to row 2000 meters on the rower. And then I'm going to do 20 wall balls and 15 thrusters and 10 burpees and get right back on. And I would continue things like that for 90 minutes to an hour and 20. And then I did, I don't know if you remember this infamous burpee ladder that I did, which was. Oh, that was nasty. 100 burpees, mile run. 90 burpees, 0.90 mile run. 80 burpees, 0.80 mile run. So you do five and a half miles of running with 550 burpees. And I certainly couldn't run for an hour and a half, but I could do that for an hour and a half. And I did that. And then suddenly when it came down time, I never cramped. My engine felt good. I was ready for any sort of hit. And my legs felt probably as powerful as they ever did. And I don't know if I would have done that if I wasn't kind of staving off or managing an injury. 
And I feel like that kind of outlines a little bit of what you're saying. Yeah. I'd even felt that engine wise, but it certainly translated where my legs didn't give out on me at any point on course. Um, that season that I can even think of, I think we had big bear for the first time at that venue in May. And for, I think I took sixth place. And for me to go out there and do that on that venue on that course and not cramp would probably speak to the the time I put in doing those other things. So I, I feel that one bracken. For sure. It's, I mean, anything we practice, we get better at, or at least more used to. And if we struggle with late race power, and power can look a lot of different ways. It can mean I can no longer run up the hills at the end, or I can't keep my form together, or my last six miles of the marathon, I really start to fatigue through my through my trunk. If any of that happens, or if it's an OCR, I, I start really fatiguing, pulling myself up over walls or obstacles. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And practicing fatigued, powerful movement is one of the most efficient ways to get more efficient at that. And so you, you yeah. saw that. And even a standard runner, let's say that workout you did, they would, a marathoner would never do a workout like that. But what if they took a portion of that? What if they just did 10 burpees every half mile or mile for the last six miles of a 16-mile run? Mm-hmm. maybe even just once every three weeks, once every two weeks, add something like that in. That's not going to change your running fitness in a negative way at all, but it will change your ability to recruit muscle fibers late stage in the race and not break down. Yep. You don't have to do OCR workouts. You just have to take components of it that are proven to be successful at making, and let's face it, subpar endurance athletes who are carrying too much muscle around run better than they ever should have any business running. Like that's one thing our sport can do. We can all run better than we look like we should be able to run. 100%. And so if you can take someone who looks like they should be able to run a 220 marathon and they fade to 226 or 230 each time and you add in some of the things that we've we've figured out, you don't have to do all of it, but just pieces of that. Yeah. I agree with that. I agree with that all, Bracken. Good. I, I feel like this is one of those episodes where like, we're giving you some sort of takeaways and tangibles, but it's also one of those things that we need to pass the torch and give it to you because we don't know your next race or your next race demands or where you're currently training and what that training environment lacks or is good at. So it's like very customized to where you live specifically, but it's hopefully you got the wheels turning enough where it's like, okay, this is what I believe I need to do next time in order to stave this off. And it's most likely a combination of things. It's not most likely an either or, like a fine bushwhacky terrain and go do 90 degree turns while descending through the brush only. It might be, well, you also got to add in these hip adductor and abductor work and maybe be a little more diligent about your strength work too. So again, maybe you, you could be feeling a little cloudy, like what do I do with this information other than maybe some specific strength movements. But it is one of those situations where you kind of have to figure it out for your own situation. Yeah. And, and we said this at the beginning. The nutritional piece is easy and you can solve it quickly. You just check the boxes and you're done. This is the piece that's more difficult, but it's also more fun. And I guess if anyone needs a little bit more prodding, this is where the vanity piece comes in. When you start working these other little muscle groups and using your body in a different plane, this is when you start to really harden your body up. This is where your little riblets start popping. If you've already got abs, but your sides are a little, like these are the things that pull this all together. This is where you, your shoulders and your back and your lower back and like, those things start, you just start looking like a more complete athlete and visually you're just more appealing. And to some people that doesn't matter, but 
To some people, that is a really empowering feeling to have. When you start working your inner thighs and outer thighs, your legs, people want to talk about toning up. This is this is how you combine your endurance work, your strength work, and your in-between skill work to just have a, a body that looks like someone who knows what they're doing and that it's a weapon. And it's an attractive looking thing. So the vanity piece to it should play for some people as well. Ain't nothing wrong with wanting to look good, Bracken. It's what kept my personal training business alive for the last decade. So (laughs) (laughs) I am all good with that PSA. It can't be your only driving force, but there's no shame in wanting wanting that piece too. So these little pieces are the ones that round you out. Yeah, I agree. I I don't have anything to add to what we've spoken of so far. Did you have anything more that came to mind? Um, No, not really. I mean, they, they, they're probably already doing the other piece, which is talk to other people who live in your area who didn't cramp. Yeah, that's fair. They probably have something that they're doing. And it's probably some, some version of what we talked about today. But maybe there's something special that we haven't considered. And those are the people. I mean, you look at the people who are doing it better than you and you steal from them. That's how everyone improves in life. It's kind of true. Take it, steal it, and then make it your own. And give them credit. Yeah, that's the big piece. Give all them this credit. knowledge we've dropped over the past year and a half has all been totally organic. <laughs> Man, how many times have I referenced Canova or Inga Britson or Salazar or Fitzgerald or all of them? Daniels. You give credit where credit's due. We're just honestly regurgitating on you once a week, is what we're doing. That's it. We got to study to earn the ability to regurgitate Bracken. That's right. Mm-hmm. That's right. You earned that right. You're in there, right? Till the next one. Yeah, let's prevent some cramps. There's no worse feeling in a race than cramping. It is a helpless, helpless feeling, and I would wish that upon no one. So let's never feel that again. Agreed, Bracken. I'm going to cramp tomorrow on this 21 mile run. Mm-hmm.